You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. Paul Doroshenko is away this week, but to replace him, we have an extra special guest, Dana Larson, who is a cannabis activist, author, uh, somebody who actually got uh, to get Mike Farnworth on the phone, which you're going to hear about. Um, So somebody who has a lot to share. And Dana and I are going to talk about cannabis impaired driving, but also legalization generally, um, because Impaired driving and cannabis-impaired driving doesn't just impact driving law. It has uh, an impact sort of overall on legalization. And the conversation between Dana and I is going to follow through on that and see how driving law is, in fact, connected inextricably to the legalization of cannabis overall. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you to Dana Larson for joining us today on the Driving Law podcast. Uh, Dana, for... Pretty much everybody who already knows this is uh, one of the perhaps loudest voices in activism uh, related to cannabis and and has been sort of a powerful force in the, the team of people across the country who have been working towards cannabis legalization. So thank you so much, Dana, for joining me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. I uh, I really appreciate all the work that you've done sort of thus far um, to get us as a country to where we are. There's obviously a long way to go, but I mean, we, we've made significant strides um, towards legalization of cannabis. So that's, um, thank you. Well, well, yeah, and I, I think it's, as we know, it's, it's not just about cannabis. It goes much further than that. And we're kind of on the beginning of, of a long journey uh, of really ending prohibition and and I hope that it goes beyond cannabis and we recognize that the whole war on drugs is really uh, the problem and the solution to most of these problems is just to end the prohibition. Yeah, and I do want to talk to you about that a little later, but um, because we're we're a driving law-themed podcast, <laughs> I thought I wanted to talk to you a bit about um, cannabis and driving because that's, I think, been... It, it, a large part of the resistance to the legalization is this notion, this this panic that people have that as soon as we legalize cannabis, all of a sudden we're going to have this crisis of cannabis-impaired drivers. And um, I assume that you have some thoughts about that. Well, it's all based on a false premise or multiple false premises. You know, the first false premise is that legalization will result in a lot more people using cannabis and, and, uh, and using it in stronger levels. And that's just not the case. Uh, the American states that have legalized have not seen any big increases in, in impaired driving under cannabis or anything like that. And if you look historically, the biggest growth in cannabis use in Canada came during the 60s and 70s when the penalties were a six-month mandatory jail sentence for possession of cannabis. So it's not the law that necessarily affects how much people are going to use this substance. Uh, and so legalization, I don't think, is going to lead to more people using it. Do you That's think, the first fallacy. But yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, I, I was going to say, do you think that um, part of the problem is sort of this I- idea that government has that um, maybe is misinformed because of policies like we have in the lower mainland with lots of the police departments not doing arrests for simple possession and just doing no-case seizures, that there's not as much cannabis use going on as there in fact is? Or is it more than that? 
Well, there's a lot of people that use cannabis, uh, and, and if anything, legalization will probably lead to people using cannabis in less potent forms. <laughs> uh, we see, you know, we, as we move towards legalization, what's the most popular growth thing? CBD, which has got virtually no psychoactivity. That's what people are really interested in, less potent cannabis, mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, rather than, uh, than stronger stuff in that way. And, uh, and yeah, I think that a lot of people are already using cannabis. And so the second fallacy that the, that this idea that there's getting more accidents is that cannabis is is that people using cannabis are dangerous on the road, and that being a cannabis user means you're more likely to have an accident. And the statistics don't really back that up. And what they also don't consider is that a lot of people switch from alcohol to cannabis. Yeah. And when people switch from alcohol to cannabis, uh, that's a more responsible choice and makes them safer in every way. And you don't get a hangover. <laughs> it's just generally well, yeah, and, and a more pleasant experience. And I mean, you're a lot safer on the road as well, and that's uh, that's a big issue. And, you know, cannabis can be impairing for drivers. I would never say it can't be, right? It's normally novice users, first-time users, and people who are eating large quantities can be impaired. Yeah, but at the rate that the average person uses it, a few pops off a joint, uh, is not impairing. And certainly studies, even studies that show some minimal impairment, it's always vastly less than that caused by legal amounts of alcohol. So they blow this all out of proportion. Uh, and I think it's really just a way of, of demonizing cannabis users and a way for those who, who don't like cannabis and who profit off of prohibition of finding an excuse to continue harass and go after and demonize cannabis users. And that really, I think, is at the heart of a lot of this debate. Well, there's, there's an industry behind, I mean, not just behind impaired driving, but also behind the, the criminalization of, uh, of drugs and the criminalization in particular of cannabis. It's a, it's a money making industry for a huge number of people. Um, I, a couple, last week, last week I was interviewed by CBC, um, about the, um, Drager Drug Test 5000. And then when I watched the interview on the news, they were talking about, um, the woman, uh, Marquita Callias, whose, uh, daughter was killed by a drunk driver. Um, she was talking about the drunk driving defense industry, and that's why we have such low rates of convictions, particularly here in British Columbia. But the industry isn't just the people who are defending it. The industry is also the people who who are investigating it, who are prosecuting it, who are are making money off selling the equipment that assist in the investigations. And the same is true for for cannabis. It it is very lucrative and a very big industry. And the whole, you know, prison industrial complex around the whole war on drugs is is very lucrative in many ways. And in fact, there's a huge prison strike going on in the U.S. right now because prisoners are fed up being treated like slave labor. And, uh, and, you know, a very disproportionate number of prisoners are there because of nonviolent drug offenses, and there shouldn't be criminalized at all, and certainly shouldn't be in jail. And, uh, and so, yeah, there is a big industry, and we're going to see a lot of people, and we've got this new drug testing uh, method now that they're putting out there. That's going to be very lucrative for the companies that produce those products. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a real irony here with the legalization that we're getting in Canada that it seems to be coming with a big boost to police budgets across the country to enforce legalization. They need more money to enforce legalization than they were needing to enforce prohibition. And that's really absurd and feels to me like they're just sort of trying to buy off the police and get their complicity in legalization by, by giving them extra money uh, and quiet them down, but it, it's really a problem uh, because policing costs have been out of control in Canada for many years. Uh, under Harper, there was actually a big national summit of mayors and, and, and premiers working to try to figure out how to get policing costs down in Canada because they were sucking up all the other aspects of municipal budgets. 
and now we got legalization of cannabis coming. That should be a great excuse to cut every police force in the country by about 10% or so. But instead, they're all getting a raise to go along with it. And it, it's like we're in Alice in Wonderland. It's, it's just upside down. Well, and even with those, you know, those overinflated budgets that they have, they've been, I mean, I've said this before, but really negligent in training officers to deal with this, you know, with this problem, if it is a problem, like if it is true that cannabis impaired driving poses such a significant risk to the public safety, that we need to arm officers with uh, you know, unreliable and questionable technology to detect people who have THC in their systems and then take them off the road and then give them further examinations to test for impairment and prosecute them um, because they might kill somebody. If, if that's the case, where have the police been all this time that we've we've had cannabis users in Canada and in British Columbia since, you know, since the 60s and before? Why are they not trained, and why have they not been ready long before now? Well, I mean, I think you're, an you're answering the question there. It's because <laughs> this was never really a big deal, and they didn't care about it because it wasn't happening, and it wasn't worth focusing on. Yeah, and uh, the only reason they're focusing on it now is to keep, keep their jobs for the cops who, who used to be enforcing cannabis prohibition in other ways. Yeah, it just, I don't know, I, I, I get really cynical about the whole thing, and, and maybe that, you know, does me a disservice in the in the public eye or whatever, but I just, I, I, I am so distrustful of this, this rhetoric that we need to do something about this when we've done literally nothing about it, and we're not in any type of crisis. I mean, even when, um, when the Justice Minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, announced the official approval of the drag or drug test 5000, she said, you know, impaired driving is a leading cause of death on our roads and highways. But then you turn around and the next week the messaging is distracted driving is the leading cause of death on our roads and highways. And then the next week it's speed kills more people on our roads and highways. And they can't even keep their, their number one killer straight. Well, you know, I think your cynicism is well-deserved and well-earned, and that anybody who follows cannabis or drug policy in Canada is very quickly becomes very cynical, because we know that they're lying, and that a lot of the things they say, they're, not, they're, they're saying it for political reasons, and they're not, they don't believe in their hearts that this is the truth, but they're saying it to deflect or to, to uh, satisfy other lobby groups and other parts of the government, and uh, there's a lot of harm caused by prohibition and caused by the war on drugs, and this focus uh, on on supposedly impaired cannabis drivers is not really helping the situation, and is really a big distraction from what we should be focusing on, which is the harms caused by our government's prohibition. Now, you as a um, as a uh, self-professed, totally free about it uh, cannabis user now, and then I mean, I assume you're going to continue to use it after legalization. Um, are you concerned about the about the driving laws and how they're going to impact you? Well, yeah, I, of course I am. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a big problem, and, and there's going to be a presumption of of guilt. You know, if you mm -hmm. get into an accident, if someone hits you and they give you a test and find that you're over the the limit on cannabis uh, that could lead to serious repercussions, whether you're at fault or not. I'm not sure they're going to be able to set up just random stops for everybody like they can do sometimes at the breathalyzers, simply because the test seems to take so long to do. Can you imagine, uh, like, although, waiting in the line of cars at the roadblock, 10 minutes for each person? <laughs> like, but, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I would rather, you know, if I was in charge, I would put in a system where they're focusing actually on your impairment and not what's in your bloodstream. 
Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of substances that also can cause impairment that they're not testing for. You shouldn't be driving on big doses of LSD, but this Drager test isn't going to show anything like that at all. No. Uh, and, and so I really think it should be about impairment and actual test. I mean, they have this roadside impairment test that they use, although that also is, is very flawed because it's, it's also, again, still focusing these drug recognition experts, as you know, or doing things like checking your muscle tone and seeing if you have injection marks. Yeah. Well, that's to see if you're a drug user, not to see if you're impaired at that moment in time, which is all they should be looking at. I would like to see them have a standardized test that that can determine impairment scientifically, and they have to tape it or record it in some way. So it's not just up to the officer's arbitrary decision, oh, your eyes were wobbling a bit too much when I was looking at you. they got to film that and have a record of it. And if we had a reliable way of testing actual impairment, I'm all for that. And if you're too high or you're too drunk or you're too tired or whatever, then that that's fine. But to just focus on what's in your bloodstream, uh, especially with cannabis, which as we know, the what's in your bloodstream and, and any impairment are totally not connected. Yeah. And then to also miss out on all the substances that, that, that could be impairing that they're not testing for, it's a failed method. And also the mitigating effects, because there's, what, 113 different cannabinoids, and not all of them are impairing. Um, I mean, Delta-9 THC is, and CBD is not. Um, and, and what do you, like, how do you test when you have the, the Drager drug test 5000, which tests for, I think, like, seven different cannabinoids, but is really only, unless you're at higher concentrations specific to, th- like, Delta-9 THC, um, how do you account for the impact of, of those other drugs? Like, do you have, a, like, a, a, a proposal of, of how the government should be looking at these better, or? Well, I, I just don't think they should be using that kind of test at all, because yeah. there's just no correlation between levels of cannabinoids and, and any kind of impairment. Like I was saying, they should be testing actual impairment. Uh, and, and that covers all drugs and substances. And more importantly, it covers things like tiredness, mm-hmm. uh, which which can also be a huge issue for people. And by the way, cannabis helps people sleep better. So that's a way that it also can help you know, people who, who might be overexhausted to get a better rest to become better drivers. You're saying uh, this, this to me. I had about two hours sleep last night, so I'm, I'm like totally exhausted as we're recording this. And I, I sure could, uh, you know, use a good night's sleep, some of the, some, uh, assistance with that. And also, you know, I shouldn't be driving right now. Of course, I'm going to get in my car and drive home from here, but, you know, I'm, I can't be arrested for impaired driving. Well, you know, you can't, although you probably shouldn't do that because you might be too tired. But, uh, but yeah, absolutely. The focus is on, on the wrong substances and the wrong things. And I, I really think it's just about demonizing cannabis and cannabis users finding an excuse and a reason not to legalize. You know, the reason always used to be for years and years, it was always when you would talk to a politician and you'd wear them down. Finally, they'd go, okay, you're right. We should legalize, but we can't because America won't let us. That was always the final argument for any Canadian politician. America won't let us. But now that they've legalized it in, in several American states, and, and, and they're moving towards it as a, as a country, I think, that, uh, in some ways. There's, uh, they change it. Now it's all about driving, and now driving is the big fear. And they always want to have some excuse to continue prohibition. It's going to get into the hands of children, because alcohol never got in the hands of children, and prescription medication never got in the hands of children, but cannabis will. Well, absolutely. And, and I mean, cannabis, you know, raw cannabis and cannabis plants pose no harm to a child at all. Uh, the only risk there is with edibles of some sort. And even then, a kid's going to be fine, although certainly they can have an unpleasant experience if they eat an edible that they shouldn't have. Uh, but, uh, but even children aren't going to be dying from that kind of thing. 
and and you know there's a lot of fear around cannabis plants and children being around cannabis plants, but a cannabis plant growing in a playground in elementary school is not going to harm anybody uh, in any way. Uh, neither is a plant growing in someone's home as well with children around it. Uh, there's a lot of this paranoia around cannabis in every way, and it's going to take us several decades more, I think, to really get past this, this, this century of propaganda and indoctrination and fear that's put into Canadians' minds over what is really a, a wonderful plan. And on the topic of edibles, I want to ask you about whether like there should be more public education about edibles and driving because you mentioned earlier um that if you have you know a large dose of an edible that you know that could have a significant problem on on your driving and you know i can uh, think back to some experiences as well as some people that i've seen and i can i can see how that's uh, that's true but like we're not focusing on telling people hey if you have an edible you know start slow and and low and you know wait and see how it impacts you give it time and don't get behind the wheel for a couple hours until you're sure that you know it's either not kicking in or it it's kicked in and it's it's done its thing well, well that's all very good advice and i think definitely people knowing the dosage of what they're getting and being able to standardize that dose and starting small and working up those are all important information that people should have but we should also remember that people who are too high on cannabis to drive they don't want to drive oh. like people who get too high they know they're too high and they don't want to do that kind of stuff. Cannabis does not lead to the same kind of false bravado and overconfidence that alcohol does. So someone even who's been smoking cannabis might even be okay to drive, but they don't want to because they don't, they don't feel like taking any risks. Cannabis affects people very differently. And someone who's eaten too much, the only real risk there, I think, would be eating too much and then driving before it kicks in and then getting high like while you're driving or something. But anybody who's eaten a bunch of edibles and is, and is in, in the middle of that experience it has no desire to drive anywhere and would never like be very unlikely to get behind the wheel of a car. Sometimes so, very so, unlikely so, to get up from the couch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, the, so, so although it can be impairing in that sense, people don't, they're not going to seek out to drive and do that in, in, the, in, the, in the same way at all. Whereas people who are drunk will deny that they are impaired, they will feel overconfident in themselves, and they'll do things that they wouldn't ordinarily do perhaps. Uh, and, and that includes making risky, bad decisions like, like driving while impaired. And so obviously you don't want to drive when you're too high, but it just doesn't create the same kind of problems because these substances are not the same. And we should not be regulating cannabis like alcohol. We should be regulating cannabis like cannabis. And I saw another um, study recently that uh, talked about the compensatory abilities of people who have taken cannabis so with alcohol like if you lose your your you know gross motor coordination because you've consumed too much alcohol you can't identify mentally that that's happened to you and then compensate for it by engaging some other aspect of your body or 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 um, recognizing that and, and mitigating the effects before you use your arm or whatever the case may be but with cannabis um, the studies are showing that people who are you know, quote unquote, impaired by cannabis are able to compensate. They're able to say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, my limbs are moving more slowly than normal, but I can compensate by doing whatever else, by starting my action sooner. Um, and so you don't get that same impairment in the ability to drive because of the compensatory ability that people have. Like you have an awareness of your impairment. Yeah, they're just, they're just different substances that affect people in very different ways. And what you're saying is absolutely true. And I mean, you can see somebody who's really drunk can't walk in a straight line, can't speak properly, will slur their words, and will often do and say things they wouldn't ordinarily do. Someone who's stoned 
doesn't do those kind of things, doesn't, doesn't have those same behaviors, and, and they're more aware of what's, where they are and what's going on, and also more aware of any kind of impairment and either to don't want to drive or will work to, to compensate for it. So we're treating these substances exactly the same, and they're just so different from each other. And, you know, there's a lot of pharmaceutical drugs that can be very impairing to users, mm-hmm. and the way we deal with that is to put a warning label on it saying, warning, don't operate heavy machinery after using this drug. We don't have a blood test or a breathalyzer test for any pharmaceutical that can impair people at all. I know there's no push for that either, even though they can be very, driving on Valium is probably not a good idea, uh, but there's no test for that. The only It's only cannabis that they have this big push to have this test and to treat it like alcohol and do all these things, but it, it, there's so many ways you can be impaired, and, 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 and it's impossible to have one kind of breathalyzer or drug test that tests for every possible substance. It's just a fool's game, and... And so it, it, that's why it's going to be such a failed policy. That's really interesting that you bring that up because one of the, when the announcement about the Dragger drug test 5000 came out, one of the criticisms I had was the amount of time it takes for the testing, you know, 10 minutes for the analysis. And finally, the CEO of Dragger responded and said, oh, no, no, we're only going to be in Canada. We're going to be programming them. So they only test for cannabis and cocaine. So not opiates, not benzodiazepines, not um, uh, not like anything else that's impairing methamphetamine. I don't want somebody who's high on meth behind the wheel. Um, I also don't want someone high on cocaine behind the wheel. But, you know, you have this, this device that's supposedly able to test for seven things, and you're eliminating five of them without any good reason for doing so. Is that just to make the test go faster or something? Would it take more time? Or co- it probably costs more money per test, I imagine, nope. if they had to test for more things. No, it doesn't, no, the cost it doesn't, because it's the same, it's the same swab that you swab around in your mouth. Um, and the thing that takes the most time, interestingly, because he's saying, oh, this is going to save time. But in our tests with the, with the device, the thing that takes the longest time to analyze for is the cannabis. You get the results for everything else in, you know, in like two minutes and the cannabis takes 10. So it's not saving any time. Everything else is done really quickly. They're cocaine or they're not. There's opiates or there's not. There's cannabis. We don't know. We're still looking. We're still looking. We're still looking. It doesn't save any time. It's. I don't know why uh, the CEO said this. I don't know if he's misinformed or just wants to misinform the public because people love to spread misinformation about cannabis and cannabis-impaired driving. But it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, though, that they took out and, and in particular, opiates, because we have this huge opiate crisis right now in British Columbia in particular, but across the country, and yet they're not going to be testing for that. And certainly opiates, like other things, they can be impairing in some dosages. They are not going to be impairing in other dosages. Somebody in pain might even drive better after having taken opiates because if they have the right dose, it could relieve their pain and help them to function better. Mm-hmm. But obviously taking a big dose of opiates beforehand and going on the nod or something is going to be devastating to your driving abilities, right? <laughs> and so, they, you know, you face these same kind of issues around trying to set some kind of blood level limit. Uh, someone who's a heavy opiate user can take and have in their bloodstream much higher levels than a novice user and, and, and get the same effects, right? So mm-hmm. it, it would be also, I think, very difficult to come up with some kind of number and say after this number you are impaired by opiates and under this number you're not. Just like cannabis, it, it really depends on so many other factors that it becomes like just a meaningless exercise. But it's interesting that they chose to follow through with that exercise on cannabis but not on any other, like not on opiates or other substances. 
that's bizarre. Do you think that over time, this attitude about cannabis-impaired driving and just sort of general cannabis use, do you think that it's going to shift, like, after legalization, as time goes on, we're going to see the, the sort of the law be corrected and the um, the government get their heads sorted out um, about, you know, what cannabis is and does and, and how it, it does it? Um, and do you think it's eventually we're going to get to a place where it where it's, you know, understood in the same way that we understand the, you know, the risks and few benefits of alcohol? Uh, well, I like to think it's, it's going to happen eventually, but I think it's going to be a while. But I would say that public attitudes, I think, are ahead on this. I think the general public, the average person recognizes that uh, cannabis is far, far less impairing and risky for drivers than, than alcohol is. I think that a majority of Canadians understand that. And certainly people who are familiar with cannabis understand that. Mm-hmm. And I think they use that in their propaganda, right? They say, oh, you know, so many people have driven with somebody who used cannabis and so many Canadians don't think this is a serious issue. We've got to convince them otherwise. And I think, oh, well, Canadians are actually maybe a little more educated on this issue than, than the government is because they seem to understand that, that for the most part, cannabis and driving is not a major problem and shouldn't really be where the focus is. But, uh, but yeah, I think over time, as more people get familiar with cannabis and as they move through uh, legalization, I think that over the other 10 years or so, we'll see some of these laws uh, ease up. I sure hope so, but I think ultimately it's going to be people like you fighting in court that is really going to be the ones that change these laws because politicians are always afraid of really taking this kind of action. They want to leave it to the courts, and then they go, oh, well, the courts made us do it. We didn't have any choice. And so I hope that uh, the courts will agree that some of these laws and provisions are just not constitutional and not fair and should be tossed out. Well, I hope I hope that's the outcome. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the Supreme Court of Canada one way or another on this type of stuff. But I really do hope that our courts um, are ahead of our legislation um, in this area and that they can, you know, they can do a good job of analyzing the expert evidence and analyzing the factual evidence to to come to a conclusion about whether the law is, uh, is in fact, good or bad. And, and I hope they agree with me, ultimately, <laughs> but that remains to be seen. Um, but I, I think I also want to pick up on your point there about, you know, it's, it's going to take 10 years. And I, I think that's maybe a an optimistic estimate I would say maybe 25 but I hope that it happens in our lifetime well it's going to be a long a long process that that's for sure you know I was looking back on on alcohol prohibition and when they ended the ban on alcohol in British Columbia uh, for the first 10 years after that the only sign a, a beer saloon or a bar could put outside was one that said open they couldn't advertise or promote or anything in any way after 10 years, the law was changed, and they were allowed to add another sign, one that said licensed establishment, and that was the most they could do to promote alcohol after a decade after prohibition. So I think we're going to see it. You may be right. It could be 20 years. It could be longer. Uh, I mean, I think the cannabis story is a little different than alcohol prohibition, but there's certainly a lot of similarities. And if anything, cannabis prohibition is far more entrenched in our society than alcohol prohibition ever was. Mm-hmm. So by that standard, it may take much more than 20 years to get uh, to the real end of the stigma and the harassment and the, the persecution of cannabis users. 
Now, it's not just cannabis users, and, and you and I have talked a bit about this, and I know you've talked at length with uh, Paul Doroshenko, um, who's the sometimes co-host of this podcast, um, about this. It's it's not just cannabis users who face this stigma and harassment and persecution. It's, it's drug users overall. Um, and that leads to a lot of really big social problems, particularly right now. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've been saying that the, 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 what we call the war on drugs ultimately is, is a genocide against dehumanized drug users. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes get upset when I use the word genocide. But, you know, in countries like the Philippines, they're, they're mass murdering drug users on the streets of their cities with the, with the president of the country egging people on and encouraging this. And there's been thousands and thousands of people uh, murdered for suspicion of drug use. And, and here in and, and, and you know here in Canada, there, people are dying four a day in British Columbia, more all across the country, and and the government simply refuses to end the persecution of can, of drug users, which is what is fueling these deaths. So whether we're, people are getting shot down on the street or whether they're being murdered by government policy, uh, it seems like drug users' lives are just expendable, and uh, no politician really cares when another drug user dies. Yeah, and it's interesting that their reaction, and I don't, I, I mean, I don't hate what they're doing with the lawsuit against the opiate manufacturers. I think that that is, it, I mean, we have the Healthcare Cost Recovery Act for a reason, and it's an important step to take because it is such a huge public health crisis and because it's been so financially taxing for the province, especially with the rates of, you know, four deaths a day that we ha- are seeing right now. But it shouldn't be the only thing they're doing. And it seems like all they're doing is bringing a lawsuit that's going to, you know, wind its way through the courts over the next 20 to 25 years. Um, do you, I, you I think, have, think, you have suggestions? Well, <laughs> well, I think that lawsuit, I mean, I, I'm no, I'm no fan of big pharma, but the law, these companies are not responsible for the overdose deaths. They didn't put poison in the drug supply. No. You used to be able to buy heroin and opium over the counter without a prescription. And there was no overdoses back then. But the government creates a situation where safe dosages, things like opium tea and smokable opium, are prohibited. They create a situation where, under prohibition, only the strongest forms of drugs are available. Then they license some big billionaire companies to sell, to be the only one selling very strong forms of highly addictive drugs. And then they get surprised when there's problems. Like, it's entirely a government-created problem. And being a drug addict or being a dependent on a drug is by no means, it should by no means be a death sentence. If it was, you know, we have a lot of coffee addicts out there who I think would be facing some pretty serious problems. So this lawsuit, I think, is a distraction. I mean, if it was if it was one small piece of a much larger effort, then okay, that would be fine. But ultimately, we should be suing the government for, for prohibition and for not creating a safe supply of drugs that people can access. That's what's killing people. And I would love to, to launch either a human rights suit or a direct lawsuit against the government, against the provincial and or federal government, saying that they are killing people with their drug policy and that that needs to, they need to be held accountable for that. I'm not sure what the legal tactics would be to push something like that forward, but, but ultimately, when these politicians, you know, are pointing the finger at the pharmaceutical companies, there's a lot of fingers pointing right back at them, uh, because they are ultimately responsible for the opioid crisis and for the deaths with their refusal to do what every health expert is saying and end the war on drugs, 
criminalize and create a safe drug supply. Well, also, like, look at the way that we've allowed doctors to just prescribe opiates. I mean, my my own personal experience, I had a really bad back injury a couple years ago, and I, I actually, like, I collapsed in the street. I had to be carried <laughs> to my car and driven to the hospital. Uh, like, just incredibly embarrassing. Um and I get to the hospital and I said, I don't want narcotics because I've, I've got to be in court tomorrow. And the, they were pushing them on me. They're like, you need it, you need it. And I said, I don't want them. Like, let me try something else first. If it doesn't work, then we can talk about the narcotics, but I don't want it. Um, and they were really pushing them on me. And then after, after I ultimately, I did need the morphine. Um, but uh, after I was being discharged, they wouldn't let me leave the hospital unless I took five Oxycontin pills with me. So take the drugs with you, Kyla, and a prescription for 25 more. And I thought, you know, if you compare that, basically being forced to take a highly addictive substance that we know has led to a lot of these people who end up accessing the illegal drug supply um, because they can't, you know, then get the, you know, the medicine that they were once prescribed because they're now an addict and they're not, they don't need it for, you know, to treat an injury any longer. Um once you have have that and compare it with what we've structured very quickly in response to legalization, both at the federal level with regulations on advertising and um, and distribution and the and the potency that they're creating um, for cannabis and packaging and marketing and the provincial regulations that they're implementing for dispensaries about what information can be given to people and how much sort of pushing towards a product or a brand um, people are allowed to do, which is essentially none. Um, you know, why, why, do we, why are we able to draft laws that are completely not sensible to deal with the the sale and distribution of legal cannabis, but we can't put any restrictions on the distribution of deadly and highly addictive drugs by doctors. Well, that is obviously a real serious problem. And, and doctors ultimately, many of them should be looking at cannabis as a first option, not a last option. You know, if you want to get access to legal cannabis, you've got to try every other possible thing first and only if nothing else works then okay we'll give you permission to have a little cannabis but you know for pain relief cannabis can help a lot of people with some serious problems heck you know i sell a cannabis cream and there's many other companies that make cannabis topicals as well and i've had people who are telling me that they have been using opiates for their pain relief and they're able to switch to a cannabis cream and get the same relief without any opiates Wow. Now, I mean, how hard is it to try a topical cream? It comes on, it takes five minutes, but it doesn't work, then switch to something else. But and there's it, no it, and there's no impairing effects from a topical cream. There's absolutely no impairing effects, no psychoactive effects at all. And uh, it doesn't help every single person, but I've seen them help a lot of people who often have very serious uh, uh, pain problems, uh, chronic pain problems. That can lead people into opiate use and can ultimately result in really serious health challenges for them and addiction and all kinds of drug problems. And cannabis should be a first choice, not a last choice. And uh, and opiates, I mean, I agree, they're over-prescribing and over-medicating uh, people. But at the same time, I think we want to be careful that we're not restricting it so much that people who are in pain mm-hmm. are being forbidden access to their medicine. And what and that often leads people to, to worse problems, right? They say, oh, too many people are getting hooked on it, so we got to cut off all the opiate users and get them off this stuff, and then people are like, oh, well, now where am I supposed to get it? They end up getting it on the street, and then they die from an overdose. Uh, and that happens to a lot of people, too. So 
we need to have these things available for those who need them. But I think, uh, you know, pushing them, there's got to be a balance in there somewhere, I think, between those things. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and yeah. the way they're—I mean, even post legalization, the way they're they're doing it is not striking a balance at all. I mean, in British Columbia, what boggles my mind is that there is a prohibition in our in our soon-to-be provincial laws against using cannabis, going out and buying recreational cannabis, and using it for a medical purpose. It's like I, I'm sorry. So you're going to require people instead to first of all try and find a doctor. Find a doctor that's going to prescribe them cannabis, get the prescription for cannabis, and then go out and, and still order it through the Weird Health Canada, mail it to you, strange channels. Where, where, there's actually a... It's in the Cannabis it, Act, yeah. They, they don't permit you to have um, medical cannabis that you, um, that you get through the recreational channels. Oh, so because because you're allowed to have because a medical user is allowed to possess a larger quantity than a regular person is, and has things like that. So they if, if a regular if a regular user has more than thirty grams in public, they get in trouble. But a medical user is allowed to have more than thirty grams. Yeah. But you're saying that if if they got that gram at a at a at a shop, yeah. then they could be arrested for possession of too much cannabis. Exactly, which is ridiculous. Which is that that I didn't I wasn't aware of that, and that's just I mean there's so many terrible flaws in this legislation at every level, federally and, and provincially. And I'm very upset with the, with the provincial government uh, uh, legislation and the way they've written it. Uh, you know, things like nobody can see your four legal cannabis plants or you can face three months in jail and a $5,000 fine. Like, that's an absurd... And that's only for the first offense, right? Second time it doubles. Uh, and, and a lot of these provisions in there. And, uh, you know, I talked to Mike Farnworth about some of this legislation. He did give me a half an hour phone call uh, a couple of months ago with him and a few of his assistants talking about this stuff. And, oh, wow. and one of the things I asked him was, why did you put in this prohibition on possession of illicit cannabis? Aren't we talking about decriminalizing all drugs? Why did you mimic the federal government's prohibition and put it in the provincial legislation? And he said, well, that was because uh, uh, if you get charged and get a ticket under the federal law for possession of illicit cannabis, that's a criminal record offense, and that causes problems with the border and employment and all that. But if we charge you under the provincial legislation, it's not actually a criminal offense. So you don't get a criminal record, and that makes it effectively kind of decriminalized, although there's still the same penalty involved, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, the province keeps saying they can't decriminalize drugs because it's federal jurisdiction, and yet here they're telling me that they specifically put in this piece of this penalty provincially to decriminalize and get rid of the criminal record aspect of the federal legislation. Well, and, and I'm of course, sorry, we decriminalized drunk driving in British Columbia. Absolutely, and they refused to enforce the Long Gun Registry Act as well, possession of an unregistered long gun, they refused to enforce that. But, you know, the thing is, they made the penalty the same with this possession as it is federally, so three months in jail, $5,000 fine. But they could have put them the exact same thing, passed the provincial law, banned personal possession of, of illicit cannabis, but the penalty of $5 fine, and told police, we want you to enforce under the provincial legislation. They didn't have to make it the same. No, they and, didn't. And so, and so now when all these politicians in B.C. keep telling me, we can't decriminalize. It's a federal legislation. We have to arrest drug users. We can't stop because it's a federal law. And yet, they, they absolutely could. They could make it a $5 fine for possession of an illicit drug and then tell the police, we want you to do it under the provincial thing. 
Well, and, and ultimately, you know, they, they have these powers and they just refuse to acknowledge it. It's very frustrating. Legally speaking as well, there's a huge problem with creating the same, like copying the same penalties from the federal criminal law as in your provincial regulatory scheme. And that's, you know, you can see that even in the, in the Civia decision, which, you know, sort of is the case that says the province can do things that are provincial that are also criminal law. Um but you can't do them if you're copying the exact same penalties, because then that's just creating an offense, which is regulating in the area of criminal law. Um, and so I think that they've gone about it wrong. Um, and from a legal perspective, doing it that way actually makes the provincial law uh, likely to be struck down. Um, the federal law will supersede under a paramountcy analysis. And then you have people ending up with criminal records and criminal charges. And the whole purpose of the province's decision to do this being completely thwarted by the manner in which they chose to do it. Well, it doesn't seem to me like it was a particularly well thought out no. uh, process uh, provincially. And I know the NDP had just come into power and maybe they were rushing into this or something, but... But how There's could you so not be problems. thinking, like, how could you not be thinking this as a politician? Like, if you're, if you're a politician for years and years, like Mike Farnworth was and has been and continues to be, how do you not think ahead and go, well, you know, one day I might be, um, you know, the, the, the solicitor general and, and I might have to work on some legislation. Let me think through these problems in my head beforehand so I'm ready when the time comes, if it comes. Like, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm thinking ahead too much. Um, well, yeah, they, they had this online solicitation thing as well, right? This online survey where they wanted people to fill it out. And I think an online survey is very easy to game and for people to fill out and, and use bots to enter in all kinds of stuff. And <laughs> and when I talked to, to my farmers about that, I, I, I asked them, like, where in there did it say, do you think that it should be against the law for anybody to see your cannabis plants? Because those kind of questions, that was never, that was not in there anywhere. I don't know why they made that decision. It certainly wasn't based on something that was in that survey. Uh, it seems like a lot of the decisions they made uh, were not reflected in the questions that they were asking, and they just kind of came up with this stuff, uh, you know, from lobby groups or on their own afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, the other point that you made, uh, um, going back a little bit about uh, criminal record and, and border consequences, I don't think that that recognizes that even a provincial offense is something that U.S. border officials are going to have access to. And was it Bill Blair the other day came out and said that they're going to create a registry, a cannabis purchasing registry in Canada and share that information with the United States? So now, how many people are actually going to want to take the risk of lawfully purchasing cannabis after legalization, doing stupid things like that that are short-sighted? They're going to keep track of every cannabis purchase. He said he was going to like, a, a cannabis registry so that they can keep track of who's purchasing cannabis and how much. And oh well, no one's going to want to buy that. No. I mean, that's absurd. It, I don't it, want the government to have that information about me and to give it to the United States so that I can be denied entry and I never get to go to Disneyland again. Well, and of course, I mean, you can go to every liquor store and buy all the liquor in the store and take it all home. And and you know, I love the how they report some of these things you know, every every local liquor store has enough alcohol in it to kill hundreds of people, if not more. 
just for the, the, you know, you were to drink all the alcohol in any liquor store, it's enough to kill a lot of people. And anybody can buy that, no problem. But I, I'm shocked that they want to actually keep a registry of all purchases. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be a, a big problem. And I just think the more you do that, the more you say, we're watching you and we're making all these rules about your ability to use recreational cannabis and to possess it. And we're keeping track of how much you have and how much you've bought and how much you're consuming based on how much you're buying and how frequently and, and maybe it's going to push more people back into the black market. Well, I mean, I don't think the, the, the free market, as I prefer to call it, is going to be going anywhere at all. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of dispensaries out there uh, the day after legalization starts and not very many legal cannabis shops. And it's going to be very confusing for tourists and people who don't really follow this too closely. When you say, oh, marijuana is legal in Canada now, but, oh, that shop over there, no, they're actually totally breaking the law. They're not open, but there's going to be one opening over here in six months, but they're only going to have, like, not a lot of products, so it's going to be pretty sterile, and, you know, they're certainly not going to have any edibles or extracts or hash or, or any other products except for dried buds, even though Health Canada says smoking there against, but they're only going to make it available in a smoking form. It, it, there's so many levels of absurdness to it. Uh, but, you know, it's also still, like, it's a good process that we're going through all this bullshit. I wish we didn't have to, but I'm still glad it's happening and that and that we're moving forward, even though it, it's, it's you know, got so many flaws. Um, I still think it's going to be a wonderful, positive thing when this law passes. Yeah, it's better, uh, it's better than but, complete prohibition. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I think it's also going to inspire countries, other countries around the world in, in very positive ways, right? I mean, Mexico has been saying recently, well, Canada's legalizing and half of America is legalized. Why are we fighting this war on weed here in Mexico that's killing so many people? And so I think it, it's going to be part of the process. And, you know, I said I, I'm as unhappy as anybody with all these problems, but being the first country in the world to do something like this and you, you see how much negativity and pushback they're getting, uh, you know, not one premier or mayor, as far as I know, in the whole country has said, wow, this is great. Legalization is going to be awesome. Like, not one premier has has been enthusiastic about how positive it's going to be. They're all complaining about money and how much it's going to cost and how much they hate regulating things and all the problems they're going to have. And you think some of the politicians or somebody would say, hey, this is going to save us a lot of money. We can stop arresting people. Cannabis is actually pretty good, and this is going to be great. There's, There's so little of that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like the most joyless transition to legalization that you could you could imagine. <laughs> well, you know, leave it to government to take joy out of weed. <laughs> well, okay. I, I mean, that was mostly a hopeful note, and I like to end on a hopeful note, especially because lately the last few episodes of this podcast have been sad, sad notes to end on. Um, so thank you so much, Dana, for, for coming on this podcast and staying up late. Uh, I mean, I don't know how late you stay up. This is late for me. Uh, to uh, to record with me tonight. I really appreciate your insight. How can people reach you if they want to get in touch with you? Well, let me plug some of my stuff. Uh, I'm online at danalarson.com and I write some funny books about cannabis and I also wrote a great book about the history of cannabis in Canada. You can find those at potheadbooks.com and uh, my dispensary is at CannabisDispensary.ca, and we do mail order all across Canada. Okay. Uh, so those are my main projects. And, yeah, thanks so much for having me. And, you know, we got to have hope. If we don't have hope, then there's nothing to work for. And uh, it takes a long time, but change is coming, and, and we're going we're gonna to see the end of this war on drugs in our lifetime. Awesome. And I'll be, uh, I'll be watching uh, your Twitter at 420 on October 17th because I think you're doing a big celebration. And 
Oh, a celebration slash protest in Victoria, you know, <laughs> so you. we got to keep the protest going in there, too. <laughs> yeah, good, excellent, and, you know, I'll encourage people to go out and join Dana's protest, uh, I'm assuming, on the steps of the legislature. We'll be there with yeah. uh, about 100 pot plants. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. And if you like our podcast, you can follow it on Twitter. It's got its own Twitter account at Driving Law Pod. Or you can uh, reach out to us at Acumen Law, uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give me a call, 604-685-8889, or shoot me an email. My email's on the website, um, and I'm happy to take any of your driving-related questions. Next week, we'll be back with more driving law content, because it's driving law that drives the law.